I'm Jacob Kenny. And I'm Liam McPherson. It's the newest edition of your Secret Girlfriend's favorite podcast. It's Speech from the Throne, Episode 12. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest from the Halls of Power. But not with more proof our water chemicals are turning frogs gay. We're just here to argue. Hey, Jacob, uh, before we get to what we're talking about today... Uh, I just want to briefly acknowledge world events. We're recording this on May 24th, uh, 2022. Today, there was a a mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, 14 children were killed at an elementary school and one teacher um, by a teenager. And we don't know why yet. And we've been here before with Sandy Hook and we've been here before so many other times. And I don't know when the U.S. is going to realize that this is um, a cancer in the heart of its constitution. And it, I don't know how many times we're going to have to watch people, whether it's the elderly, whether it's middle-aged, whether it's children in an elementary school, die again and again and again for an amendment, the second in the U.S. constitution, 300 years old. How many more people have to die for this? Is the U.S. a failed state in this regard? You could do a whole podcast on that. Um, I'll leave that to the the experts, but even the layman's like myself know that this is uh, a horrific, repetitive, perpetual tragedy down south. And in many places in the world, there's gun violence as well. It's a terrible, terrible epidemic. Uh, and it's, um, you know, I, I don't really know what... What more to say other than that? I just wanted to acknowledge that. And Jacob and I are both, uh, you know, we're thinking of the families and and the friends and loved ones. Yeah. And when we hear of conservative candidates that are trying to run in the leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada, advocating freedom and specifically the the freedom to own and sell more of, of, you know, weapons that are designed to kill people en masse, that's a message we need to pay attention to, and, and we need to to realize that days like these are, are the results of such policies and the results of such rhetoric. It's something that Canada can do more to defend against, and it's also something that can get much worse if we allow it to get worse. Absolutely. And that brings us to our topic today. Jacob, could you tell yeah. dear listeners what we're talking about today? Well, it certainly, it certainly relates, because right now there is a... A civil war, and maybe an uncivil war, that is being undertaken in the various factions of the conservative movement in the Western world. And the way I want to approach it today, I was watching Bill Maher, a he used to be considered a liberal commentator, a liberal comedian, although he hasn't been funny since the the early two thousands. But in recent days, in recent years, he's been drumming up more and more controversy in aligning with what. I think we could consider conservative talking points, particularly talking points that bring himself into conflict with the way that our society has been changing. And the way that he was framing tonight's hysteria, or I should say last night's hysteria, because I'm, I'm reacting to something that aired last night, was he was discussing on his show, Real Time with Bill Maher, HBO show, in previous generations, in the silent generation, less than 1% of people identified as LGBT, And now the current generation, Gen Z, more than 20% of people identify as LGBT. And he is basically plotting a graph forward saying, well, if we keep 
continuing this trend, you know, by 2050, by 2060, 100% of the population is going to be LGBT. And oh my goodness, there's some sort of ideology, some sort of mind cancer that's being spread amongst our children and people are... Won't uh, someone please uh, think of the children? Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? LGBTQ ideology is infecting our youth and we need to defend against it and you know brings up course of purity blockers and, and and trans people and all of our kids are being like just he goes really far down the rabbit hole and it it made me start thinking you know this is a guy we used to think of being liberal as i said and there are many other commentators you think of someone like jk rowling who we used to think of her particularly as a as a strong feminist, as a as a liberal, she was a, a labor activist, like labor, the, the party in the UK. And now, of course, also basically as a turf, someone that advocates against trans rights and advocates very forcefully against them. There's been a realignment in this conservative civil war between a faction that is accepting of the way that our society is changing and a faction that simply cannot accept the ways that our society is changing. So you think back in the old days in small rural communities, and I'm aware of small rural communities, I grew up in a small rural community. Think you're, you're in a farming town of a, a couple hundred people. You know, this town could comfortably accept that there was no gay people in that town. Because although statistically there certainly had to have been LGBT people there, anyone that was, was so afraid to come out of the closet because everyone would have known them and everyone would have pestered them, and maybe everyone would have killed them, even in, in a very conservative town. So of course they're gonna they're gonna stay in the closet. And you know when Bill Maher points out to less than one percent of people in the Silent Generation uh, identify as LGBTQ, that's why people are too afraid to bring out their identities. Same thing about you know ethnic uh, minorities. If if there's a a small rural town and there's someone that, that that comes in you don't you don't like their racial background you boy them out so you can maintain homogenous identity essentially in your rural community and you can completely ignore the rest of the world if you want to in the cities where neoliberalism sprang up this wasn't really a possibility in the cities there's always a community for you no matter what your racial status is no matter what your sexual orientation is and so you know, there are gay bars for gay people, there are uh, ethnic enclaves for people from all different types of ethnic communities, all different types of religious communities. And neoliberals, although they were on the conservative end of the spectrum, they learned, I think relatively early on, that it was more profitable for them to sell products that encouraged people differentiating themselves, people celebrating their identities, than it was to police someone's identities. It made more sense to let people let their freak flag fly so that I could sell you your freak flag than it was to tell you you had to be uh, straight-laced and, uh, and, and upper-crust and, and act the way that everyone else acts. The problem is that the, the Conservative Party in Canada, the Republican Party in the United States, the Tory Party in the UK, was based on an alliance between these social conservatives that lived in the rural areas and these neoliberals that, that lived in the cities. And it was based on a fundamental understanding that the two worlds could not intersect, that the two worlds really could not be aware of one another. And unfortunately, with every augmentation in our level of technology, that separation has decayed. With, with radio, with television, people in those rural communities that were very homogenous, 
they suddenly became more aware that there were gay people living in the cities, that there were black and brown people living in the cities. And now with the internet, you're not just aware that such people exist, you're actually hearing from those people. You have, you're in conversation with those people. And so social conservatives that you know, were willing to basically exist in ignorance and pretend that, that people other than them did not exist, they can't go on with this illusion anymore. And they feel they have to aggressively regulate such people. They have to force them out of the political conversation because they, they just can't accept that, that they exist in the, in the way that they do exist. And of course, neoliberals, they don't, they don't think that at all. They've, they've accepted the, the change of society and they have learned how to profit from it. And so the possibility for compromise between these two groups is waning. Now, we as, as liberals ourselves, we complain about neoliberals, but at the end of the day, we can negotiate with them. We can find neoliberal solutions to climate change, for example, like cap and trade. We cannot really negotiate with the social conservatives. It, it, we, you either accept or don't accept the changes to our society. And so we as, as progressives, I think it's time that we, we took a side in this uncivil war of conservatives and started propping up the neoliberals. And I'll leave it up to, to you, Liam, and you can talk about how we on this podcast want to push for the, the neoliberals and push against the social conservatives, the Pierre Polyev types that are trying to take over this conservative movement. I mean, we're watching in real time the ice, the, the, the ice flow split apart. And this is a coalition that has existed for a long time. You know, you've, you've hinted at this. You've explained this to our listeners. But it's, it's just, it's a seismic shift compared to what people thought things were going to be like 10 years ago. You know, when, when people were writing books about the Canada's blue shift, people thought that Canada was taking a hard blue turn. And I think it is, but in a different way we thought. It's not taking a hard blue turn in terms of the way Stephen Harper governed in 2011. It's taking a hard blue turn in that, as we've talked about before in this podcast, this populist wave that's creeping across the world, that's, that's a blue wave, but it's a blue wave of an increasingly socially conservative tinge. And we cannot allow political illiteracy and social conservatism to dismantle what we have in this country. Instead, we should be fixing what needs to be fixed and building the country up. And Pierre Polyev and Leslin Lewis are teardown people. More specifically, Pierre Polyev. He's extremely popular. He's the front runner of the conservative leadership race. And he's a teardown. He's a teardown guy. You want to tear down what needs to be teared down? Like, you know, tearing down the current iteration we have of, of policing and security forces in this country and replacing it with something that works better. That's a teardown I'm okay with because you're tearing it down and then building it up. Pierre Polyev is just a teardown guy. And he's extremely dangerous to the way of life that we enjoy in this country, to the freedoms we enjoy in this country, despite the fact that he would convince you otherwise. And because of that, I, myself, nor Jacob, want to feel like we've, we've just sat by and done nothing when this kind of guy is, is poised to be the next official leader of the opposition and possibly the next prime minister. So we have done the unthinkable. We have both joined the Conservative Party of Canada. Um, we both bought a, a one-year membership because obviously 
I wanted the cheapest, shortest amount of time I can be in this party. We didn't join the Conservative Party of Canada because we want to be conservatives. I know that sounds weird, but let us explain. Uh, we joined the Conservative Party of Canada because in order to take a stand against this guy, Pierre Polyev, it's not enough to just vote in the general. It's not enough. We have to stop him before he can even get into a leadership position. And as a result, we're going to be playing the sad game of ranking evils from least awful to most awful. And um, I think Jacob agrees with me here. I've gone with Scott Aitchison because he's the least threatening of all of them. I mean, I'm not going to vote for him as prime minister. Like, that's what I want to make very clear here. We're not going to vote Tory in the general we're ranking him at the top, and then probably the Red Tories, Sheree and Brown after that. If I have the option, I'm not even going to put Leslie Lewis or Pierre Polyev on my ballot. I have to, I'll have to look at the ballot rules. If I have to, then, you know, I'm undecided as to which ones, you know, I would probably put Pierre Polyev last, but then Leslie Lewis wants to start dismantling uh, abortion access. So, you know, I would be in a bit of a dilemma there, but I know for sure the top three I'm going to include on my ballot uh, that I mentioned. And the latter two, if I can help it, I'll leave them off my my ballot, if that's allowed. Because it's a ranked ballot system, the conservative leadership race. We've talked a little bit about it before on the podcast, but basically how that works is you're presented a ballot where instead of just like voting for the candidate that you like most, you rank the candidates from in in order of preference from your, your favorite to your least favorite. And what happens is if somebody gets enough vote to win on the first ballot, then they win the leadership. Usually it doesn't happen. So it usually goes two or more often much more rounds and what happens is so let's say like no candidate made it on the first ballot then they'd start looking at second choices and that's where deals start to happen between you know candidates who are consistently ranked as the second choice candidate they'll you know partner up with other candidates and try to sort of jockey for you know they almost form mini coalitions and jockey for position to push one guy over the edge so we're probably going to see brown and charay backing each other because there's from a similar sort of uh, section of the conservative party uh so we're gonna see them probably partner up i imagine i don't know for sure but i imagine hsn will probably wind up joining if he has to like let's say it goes four five six rounds it's gonna come down to third choices he's gonna be a lot of people's third choice so they're gonna start that's when the partnerships are gonna start to form and then i imagine babber lewis and polyev will wind up teaming up as ballots go on if it comes to that i mean Pierre Polyev has a lot of support. It's, it's, I think it's weakening a bit, but as of me last checking, he has a lot of support, and there's a slim possibility he could win on the first ballot. So that's why we're getting involved, because we, we just can't sit by and watch this happen. And Jacob, I'll let you speak for yourself. Yeah, well, we see in Canada, thankfully, parties, our political parties as an institution, are much stronger than in the United States and in the the UK. The the party apparatus, particularly around the leader's office, has a much more ironclad grip over the party than in our cousins in the Anglosphere. And so it has been harder, particularly in the conservative parties, for these populist waves to sweep over the conservative party and and replace the leadership. I mean, we saw Heather Stevenson in Manitoba, for example, basically was the, the caucus, the insider's choice to replace Brian Pallister, but she had a, a, a very aggressive challenger, a nobody candidate that was just represented again, this, this, this populist, more Pierre Polyev energy uh, in the Manitoba PCs. And Heather Stevenson, it seems like with some cheating, a, a little bit of skirting around the rules, was still able to, to get ahead. And then, of course, Kenny, although he did step down, he still did narrowly survive 
his leadership review, he, he got 51% of the vote in in Alberta. And again, that's also with some, some tweaking of the rules and with using all of the tools of state basically to, to get him to that result. Now, the, the problem is, is that as you saw with, in both like the Manitoba and Alberta example, the, the great wall of the party institution is falling down. The populist wave has gotten so strong that it's almost able, it's not quite at the tip, but it's almost able to overcome all of these institutional blockages against it. And once it overtakes the Conservative Party apparatus, once it uh, controls the Tory party, it will use all these tools that once were holding it in check to purge the party of the of the neoliberals or people that are standing against the social conservative, the, the against this reactionary wave. And we're going to see not just a conservative party that, that echoes these reactionary talking points, but a conservative party that is serious about implementing its reactionary talking points. And that is the nightmare scenario. For me, I, I, I'm not afraid of a, of a Bernier that just you know talks crazy shit out of his mouth. I'm more concerned about a Pierre Polyev who is in control of conservative party, of its huge war chest, of a long history of, of governing the country, of, of experts and bureaucrats he can rely upon to implement his ideas. That's a, that's a far worse proposition than Mad Max making some weird tweets every now and then. And that's why I think we need to, to fight against it. So I, I'm, I'm more or less in the same order. I bought my my membership for the Conservative Party through Atchison's website, uh, votescott.ca. I probably would rank him first. I'm actually on the fence between between him and, and Patrick Brown. Really, it's just the allegations of, of sexual harassment against Brown that, that, that would prevent me from, from ranking him first. But I'd rank Brown third. I know I said Brown and Charay, but I actually met Charay and Brown. Because yeah. I, I, I see. You know, because like it's like pick the guy who implemented an early sort of, you know, proto version of Bill 21 or the guy with sexual impropriety allegations. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's like but also so. Jean, Jean Charest is it's just all of the corruption scandals. I mean, the reason why the, the reason why I got disenfranchised with the federal liberal party was because of the SNC Lavalin scandal. Yep, and, same. And uh, and too cozy connection between industry and the liberal party. And Jean Charest basically represents an even an even closer relationship, an even more corrupt relationship. There is someone I would still I would probably add Roman Bobber to as fourth place on my list, strictly because he is in favor of the decriminalization of drugs, which is a, a position that we don't see represented at all in the in the political uh, mainstream. If he was willing to, to talk about that more often than he talks, you know, against lockdowns, I would <laughs> actually really, I would really support that sort of candidacy. Yeah. I think that there's, and that's the sort of the reason why I want to support these libertarian types, these neoliberal types in the conservative party, because I think that's a message that we need to hear more of in the Canadian political spectrum. But because conservatives talking about freedom talk instead about, you know, the, the freedom of religious people to remove a woman's reproductive rights or the freedom of, of Christians to tell Muslims not to wear hijabs. That's what freedom means in the in the conservative context. Now, they, I got to jump in just 10, yeah, 10 seconds go, go, because I can go. hear the Pierre Polyev supporters. If there are any listening, I can already hear them jumping on the fact that Pierre Polyev has, has been clear that he's pro-choice. And yes... But he, the fact is, is he's right wing on a whole lot of other things. 
including the occupation that happened in Ottawa that some people call the Freedom Convoy that brought the city to a grinding halt. Uh, he supported that. He's an Ottawa area MP that abandoned his city. And sure, maybe he's not anti-abortion, you know, but he's a threat. But sorry, back to you, Jacob. Yeah, as I was saying, basically, you know, Pierre Polyev's whole spiel about talking about liberty and talking about freedom, and yet he never mentions actually one of the greatest incursions against Canadians' freedom by the federal state, and, and that is the continued illegalization and criminalization of illicit drug users. And there actually is someone on the conservative stage that, that is willing to bring that up. Instead, Pierre Polyev relies on a, a philosophically weak understanding of liberty. I was very interested when I was listening to him on Jordan Peterson's podcast try to defend his idea of liberty. And Jordan Peterson, although he's also very conservative in his own way, was actually very good at, at finding the, the plot holes, at least because Pierre Polyev's whole spiel is, oh, liberal parties, progressive parties, they fight over control. And there's a limited amount of control. There's only so much control to go around. I'm fighting for freedom and freedom is unlimited. And he lists a bunch of areas where that is true. But then he says in religious freedom, the freedom of a Christian to practice his religion doesn't impede the freedom of a Muslim to, pr to practice their religion. And I think sadly in this case, he's sort of showing himself to be not particularly philosophically rigorous. Because if you look at the foundation of, of many of the world religions, a lot of them are founded on, on a sense of, uh, that their idealized state is as a state religion. And that the idealized state of Christianity or Islam or, or Hinduism is that there's a particular way of life that needs to be given to all people. That's, that's why particularly Christianity and Islam are, are really interested in converting people. And so in order for people of different religions to exist in the same state, you have to limit their religious expressions a little bit, or you have to be able to limit religious freedom slightly so that one religious faction doesn't take it upon themselves as a duty to convert the other religious factions forcibly at gunpoint, or uh, like in a, like in the Spanish Reconquista, for example, or try to start using you know their holy book as a foundation for law in the, in the state, which we're seeing a lot of conservative movements, particularly in the United States, are, are, are doing this. They're using the Bible basically as a launching point for how they should govern their state's affairs. In order for every single person of every religious denomination to actually have religious freedom, everyone needs to agree that they're going to limit their religious freedom slightly to within the laws of their state, and they're going to allow other people of different religions to practice their religion. When Pierre Polyev is talking to particularly white Christians and saying, you're going to have absolute freedom of religion, I think those white Christians are hearing, oh, I can use my religion and I can impose it on other people, or I can impose my religious values on yeah. others. Because that is the full, ex the logical extent of religious freedom in that context. And that's, that's the sort of message we need to, to push back against. And, and that's why I wanted to dissect it, because when, when you talk about freedom, the question is, whose liberty and freedom to do what? Yeah. And that's what Pierre Polyev isn't really answering. Yeah, it's freedom for a certain few on specific things. And it's policy, you know, like, sure, there's a lot of politicians before Pierre Polyev. 
that have made policy on the fly that sounds good. It's the aims, not only the aims that of, of the policy that he sort of made up on the fly because it sounds good, it's the demographics that it targets for a good chunk of them. It's the way it's framed for all of them. Uh, he thinks you're stupid if he doesn't uh, agree with yeah, you on yeah. something. And he not, not what's more than that, he has contempt for you if you don't agree with the way that he wants to do things. Um, people are already tired of that with, with Justin Trudeau. And they're going to get it again, but in blue. And I personally can't sit with that. There is a, a way that this country stays a cultural mosaic with, yes, like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm not going to do the whole, you know, Canada's better than the U.S. thing. We have a shit ton of problems, but the way that we keep our cultural mosaic, which is somewhat stable, the way that we keep it somewhat stable and hopefully build on it and make it completely stable and crack down on racism and crack down on the kinds of people that Pierre Polyev wants to enable, then we can build the cultural mosaic up. And we're going to lose that if we like if we let a guy like Pierre Polyev get into the conservative leadership. Because then you're enabling him to run against Trudeau. And I'm sorry to say, but a lot of Canadians, um, you know, a lot of Canadians vote. But Canadians, we can get complacent and we can get a little passive sometimes, I think. And we're not the only country that, that acts that way in elections and in, in life. But there's a good chance that there would be enough people that would kind of shrug and vote Polyev because Canada votes governments out, not in, because they want to get rid of Trudeau. That's incredibly dangerous. You can't give him the opportunity. You can't let him get into the conservative leadership. And that is the sole reason that Jacob and I have joined the conservative party. Now, I do want to explain a little bit that when we say we're so uh, going against social conservatives and trying to protect against social conservatives, I do think there are social conservative values that uh, can be promoted. But I, I think that we have to accept fundamentally that society is changing. And the factions that are unable to accept this are the, the factions that are most dangerous. So when I, when I talk about Burkean conservatives, these are traditional social conservatives that are sort of reacting against the advances in, in technology. I think there are parts of that conservative message that are important and that we need to hear in the, in the political conversation. The idea of noblesse oblige, for example, that the, the most privileged members of the community need to help the less privileged members of the community or yeah. you know in, in in church that everyone is a, everyone is a religious community and that have a sense of of cohesion in their community it's not I mean, socialism it's just, it's just being a good christian <laughs> yeah exactly like that's it that i think that is actually a, a really important message that we need to hear more often but the message of being gay is a is a sin therefore we need to ban people from being gay or in the most extreme examples we need to criminalize people who, who are gay and torture them in order to convert them back into straightness that's something that is is really dangerous we think that this this debate's settled there are parts of the world where this debate isn't settled and where actually our generation like young guys like us are becoming radically more homophobic than their parents i'm thinking in particularly millennials in and gen z um, Africans, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, have more conservative 
attitudes towards uh, homosexuals than their parents did. And the academics I've been reading on the on the subject seem to suggest that they think they were radicalized by the internet, that the internet has allowed these very social conservative voices to, to proliferate outside of their regular reach in the rural communities into the cities. And we're seeing this this realignment. That's why I'm talking about Bill Maher. That's why I'm talking about J.K. Rowling. There are, there are a bunch of people that we thought had agreed with this, this argument, that thought we thought they had accepted that society had changed. But when they were given the opportunity to show their true colors, they weren't able to accept that society had changed. And they're, and they're pushing back against it. And that gives us reason to be afraid that if Pierre Polyev took over the Conservative Party, we can't just all hold our noses high and say, a Conservative Party led by Pierre Polyev would be too radical and it would never be accepted by Canadians. We don't know that. There are people that cannot accept that society has changed, and maybe they're voting Liberal right now, maybe they're voting NDP right now, maybe they've never voted in their lives, and if Pierre Polyev becomes a leader, they'll support him. That's why you got to stop him from becoming leader in the first place. Pierre Polyev is so popular because polling has shown that his message resonates across partisan stripes. For example, his opening campaign video was supported by 52% of Canadians. That was across party lines. It was 40% of New, New Democrats, 37% of Greens, and 36% of Liberals. This was Abacus Data that did this poll. It's only one poll, but that's quite a reputable polling firm. Polls can be wrong, but the margin of error is only so big. So the fact that 52% of Canadians agreed means that it can't be much less than 48% and probably can't be much more than 56%. Like It's a good, sizable chunk. About half of Canadians agreed with the message in his opening campaign video. He has the potential to appeal to enough voters, particularly in, in, in an instance where Trudeau stays and doesn't resign and let a leader, another leader replace him, which is possible and creates an incredibly dangerous situation, which allows Pierre Polyev to gain the reins of power. Because if 52% of Canadians can agree with his opening campaign message, Canadian governments only need 32% to form a minority government and 35% if they get their micro-targeting right to form a majority government. That's, you, he could lose 15% of the people who liked his opening campaign video and still beat Justin Trudeau because Justin Trudeau is only going to get more unpopular. Yeah, as we said, society is changing and the change is, is causing like People are becoming change. radicalized and there's only going to be more support for people like Pierre Polyev. Yeah, well, the, every change, it, it, it produces winners and losers. And if you're in the faction that feels that you're losing, even if the change for everyone overall is to everyone's benefit, if you're the faction that's losing, you're going to be embittered by the change and you're going to fight against the change. And I do think that's why you listeners, you hear us harping about universal basic income so much. Because Liam and I, we both sat through our economics lectures. We both heard the neoliberal arguments. And I, I accept the neoliberal arguments, the idea that globalization, free flow of, of goods and people does generally grow the economy and it, and it, and it helps everyone. But it also hurts the, the people who, who lose their jobs to, to more increased competition. And if we're unwilling to distribute the fruits of this change, if we're unwilling to let everyone benefit from this great radical transformation of our society, there are going to be huge factions of the society that are going to push back against it. 
if you look back at like the Roman Republic, for example, whenever there was any change politically in the Roman Republic, it was very common for, you know, basically wealthy Romans to just go out, find a bunch of citizens and pay them to vote a certain way. And, you know, we think that that sounds silly, but essentially it's, it's welfare that whenever there was a political change contemplated, you had to make sure that the benefits of that political change were shared with the common people in order for it to happen. We've sort of lost that idea in our democratic societies because the concept of buying votes just seems really gross to us. We've never even contemplated that idea. But I think we've completely lost the principle that everyone needs to benefit from change, that we can't just leave people behind. And the constant neoliberal refrain that education is a solution to every single problem that, oh, if you lose your job in the manufacturing sector, just go back to university and get trained with a, a different skill is being directly countered by these social conservative movements that feel that our universities are actually a, a, a threat to the yeah. uh, social order. Imagine so if we I, either completely covered or funded in large part, I would say completely cover like the EU. Imagine if we completely covered education. So that if somebody loses their job and we really, 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 really don't want to share the fruits of globalized labor with these people, at least for the love of God, cover them, them so that they yeah. can go back and get different credentials. For the love of God. We don't do that. Not only do we not do that and we ask them to pay 100000 dollars and hundreds of thousands in the U.S., but in Canada, $100,000 plus loads more if you're coming from overseas you're an yep. international yep. student so these people get fed up and they don't have all, maybe they don't have a lot of money like maybe the the only job that they can land is something that doesn't pay very well or or maybe that the local industry in their town shut down and they're losing a lot of money they're having trouble paying the bills they're they're falling on hard times universal basic income doesn't pay them to sit and do nothing it pays them a little bit extra so that they can have a decent livelihood and everybody deserves that in a country like Canada. But the trouble is, is that's not happening because neoliberalism is very capitalist. And that's why I'm not a neoliberal. It's very capitalist oriented. And what that means is that, sure, they'll, they're pro-globalization and they're, they're pro-flow of goods and people. They're, they're pro-immigration oftentimes. But they don't want to share the fruits of, of the labor. They don't want to share that. So the consequence is people falling on hard times. They're not supported. And then... To make matters worse, they start getting spoon-fed by conservative commentators that Facebook or Twitter recommends them because their demographic likes that yeah. um, or whatever. It just finds a way to recommend that to them. They start reading about the great replacement theory, about how left-wingers want to replace whites with other races that will vote for them and that will be more compliant and oh my and this is a centuries old thing like we've talked about this before in the podcast but it's become repurposed in the form of very well produced conservative outlets like the daily wire like dr jo dr croc dr jordan peterson <laughs> uh like uh who else can i name ben shapiro he founded yep. the daily wire like candace owens uh i you know like tucker carlson Spoon feed these people who have fallen on t on hard times hate that they believe over time because it doesn't they don't come right out and say the n-word sometimes they do but oftentimes it's spoon fed it's little it's it's I was reading a, a long form piece about Tucker Carlson and the way that he frames his broadcasts it's always they and you he's a very effective communicator he speaks directly to the viewer he refers to them as you. 
He refers to the invisible, woke-left enemy as they. Imagine being spoon-fed this, especially in the States. I mean, and Fox News does broadcast in Canada, and it's quite popular in, in some parts of the West. You're, you're watching Tucker Carlson on a daily basis, and he's spoon-feeding you stuff about you and they, they being anybody who is pro-LGBT rights, anybody who is pro-immigration, anybody who is pro-globalization, anybody that is pro, oftentimes pro-abortion, like, like uh, pro-choice, they get spoon-fed this idea that that is the enemy, when in fact it's people to the left of them, progressives, that could help them. And it's not, it's a progressive idea, but it has multi-partisan support. Brian Mulroney, uh, for reasons unbeknownst to me, maybe because it was 40 years ago and people weren't ready for it, uh, he didn't do basic income, but he recently appeared in a video endorsing it. Uh, we've had conservative senators endorse basic income. I believe Hugh Segal is one. It, it, this is something that is, is cross-partisan. There are, uh, ironically, even though I know Doug Ford won't do it and he canned the Kathleen Wynne basic income pilot in Ontario, there are current PC candidates running that have actually endorsed basic income, which I find quite a little funny and interesting, but I mean, it's getting this multi-partisan support now. It's, it's becoming part of the conversation. It's not a woke left idea, but these people are being spoon-fed the idea that it is. And not only that, that they should hate them, that they should hate immigrants, that they should hate people of color, that they should hate trans people, that they should hate gay people, lesbian people, everybody else that isn't like them. So they turn inward become isolationist and they become racist and they become radicalized over time and they adopt the beliefs and that is what we saw with the buffalo shooting that is what we saw in london ontario and it can't be allowed to happen anymore and that's what's going to happen if you let conservative folks into power if you want to be angry at the neoliberals i get it we're, we're all angry at neoliberals they failed they screwed things up. You want to talk about elites? The neoliberal elites screwed things up. I'm willing to concede that. They Big did. Yeah. They screwed it up. These are the elites we should be going after, but not in a way that allows conservative actors to seize the reins of power and dismantle what we love about this country. Yeah. The funny thing is, is that I, I think talking about there's enough freedom to go around. But the thing that Pierre Polyev consistently misses in his talking points is that freedom has a material aspect. You can have all the freedom in the world, but if you have no wealth, if you have no future prospects, if you have no ability to translate your liberty into your desires, there's no point in, in having freedom. Well, the freest country in the world, it's probably Somalia. There's no government in Somalia. It's essentially a, a warlord state. Do people in Somalia feel very free? No, it's also one of the poorest states in the world. So even though you have total liberty, you can do absolutely anything you want. At the end of the day, everyone's just left doing whatever the local warlord says, because if you don't do what he says, you starve to death. That's what total freedom looks like in that, in that context. If you want to be actually free, you need to have a certain basic level of your needs taken care of. You need to have a, a social security blanket that you can fall back on if necessary that's that is allows you to be free you can go and pursue your own business if you know that if you fail and you and you go bankrupt you won't starve if you know that you're going to starve if you fail you're not going to take risks that would that would allow you to fail if you want to pursue an education 
No one is guaranteed to get a job at the end of their education. No one's guaranteed to get good grades in their education. So if you know that if you fail in your education, you're going to starve, you can't pursue your education. You have to you have to go and work at McDonald's. You have to go and work at Tim Hortons because you you don't have the confidence in yourself. You're not sure if you're going to get good good grades. So why why take the risk? You got to go for what you're qualified for right now. But if we live in a world where you know that you can fail, you're allowed to fail without starving to death, then you are free to take risks and live the life that you want to live. And I'm having flashbacks, uh, post-traumatic flashbacks to when I was a, a Liberal Party vice president in the, in the Carleton Liberals and I was debating the campus conservatives and talking about universal access to higher education. And they were basically talking about, oh, if we, if we allow people universal basic income, if we allow them free access to education, then there will be no one flipping burgers. There'll be, there'll be no one working at the hardware stores. There'll be no service workers. And my only response- They're gonna to get replaced with is, robots. Well, no, my, my, my response is, I don't understand why we have to accept a society where the only way that people will serve us is if they are so desperate, they would die otherwise. Why is it that we think that if people if people have a choice not to work in McDonald's that they would choose not to? Why do we accept that that's that, that that's allowed? Why would we not want to make sure that the McDonald's job is so fulfilling that someone would actually want to work there? Why is it a punishment to end up flipping burgers instead of a, f a fulfilling career choice that someone can willingly decide? Is that what a free country sounds like to you? No, of course not. So why the hell are we talking about freedom in this context? <laughs> but here's the other but here's the other piece, Jacob, which which yeah. is gonna hammer your point home. The other piece is that robots are a thing. Yeah, yeah. And whether we like it or not, look, have you walked in a, a McDonald's lately? It's not even a robot. There's like three screens that you can pick from and order. And I'm not saying that it isn't better to speak to a human. I, I think it's great to have human service workers. I think it's great if we paid them fairly too. But the reality is, is that I have a feeling that we're not, you know, as much as I like a lot of ideas that are progressive, so progressive that someone calls socialist, Canada's not going to become a socialist country overnight. I'm a social democrat. Social democrats, unlike democratic socialists, work within the confines of capitalism. And I, I'm not saying that as somebody who enjoys capitalism, I'm just being realistic and we're, we're, there's not going to be a change to socialism in 20, 30 years, maybe not even 50, 60 years. So we have to work under the, the system we have. So as a social democrat, I'm acknowledging the, the fact that under our capitalist world, corporations like McDonald's are trying to cut costs and make a profit because that's capitalism. When, the, when they don't have to pay as many people, they make a profit. So they replace them with these screens. And that's going to happen in more and more service areas. It's not going to happen throughout the service industry, but the service industry is going to be decimated and any human service worker should be paid fairly. But the reality is, is they're not even willing to pay them anymore the shit wage that they give them now. They want to replace them with screens. That's, the re that's what really hits Jacob's point about basic income home. It's like uh, Jacob's point, he's coming at it morally, you know, is that the, the kind of society that we, we, we want to live in? We desperately need a service industry, which we do, but the only way that we're willing to have that service industry exist is in the, the you know, paying them the lowest amount possible and having it be miserable. And I'm sure, you know, people, and, and I know there are people who enjoy their service jobs. I'm not trying to knock service workers. What I'm saying is, is that service people should ha have it a lot easier paying the bills. Yeah. And uh, that's what, what hits things home for me with a basic income is these people and, and other industries too 
at some point they're just going to be replaced by robots. I know it sounds like sci-fi. It's not. It's just not. I, I, I dined out at a place in Gatineau before I moved. Uh, actually, it was the month I moved, and I, I took my, my good friend out for, for breakfast to say goodbye, like because it was my, our last breakfast in Ottawa. And there was a friggin' robot cat that took my plates away. I'm not even kidding. I am not kidding. And it was super cute and it was super cool. I mean, and you know, I spoke with the owner and he doesn't want to replace, at least at the moment, you know, who knows if things will change, but at the moment he doesn't want to replace all of his workers. He just wants some help with the dishes. But the reality is, is some people will get more profit driven than that. And they'll go, you know what? I'll just have a bunch of robots instead of having to pay staff and having to pay out, you know, having to arrange, uh, you know, a WSIB claim if shit happens in the workplace and having to do this and having to do that. Do you see what I mean? So, and it seems like a slippery slope, but it's not. And, you know, I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit and just quickly comment on one other thing that I touched on earlier. You know, I went on a rant about Fox News and, and Tucker Carlson and, and American right wing actors. Uh, and Jordan Peterson accepted. He's sadly Canadian. Ugh. Um, but like just to, to, to expand, there are conservative sources of media in the U.S. that are aligned with these American right-wing populists. That includes Rebel News, which is is led by Ezra Levant, who is a famously litigious uh, so-called journalist. Uh, he's far-right. He employed a neo-Nazi, Faith Goldie, for years. I don't care if he sues me. If his fragile ego wants to get in a lawsuit, uh, you know, come at me. I imagine he's not listening to this because there's only about 30 of you. But if he is, he's part of the reason why we're in the position we are today. It's 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 companies like Rebel News, like like post the post millennial, like Jeff Bollingall and Canada Proud, uh, it, like True North Center, like the Western Standard, who are taking this country down by importing populist right wing garbage into this country. Causing culture wars, getting you angry about trans people. Who you, who cares if you see a trans person in your life? You know, like who cares? Yeah. That's not you. You don't have to be trans. You know, they were born that way, and they feel like that's what they want to do. It doesn't affect you. That's actually quite a libertarian idea. Let people decide for themselves. But the the reality is, these culture wars that started in the U.S aided by Russia and China, are spreading their way through our country now. And Rebel News and Post Millennial and Jeff Bollingall and Canada Proud and True North Center and all those guys are preying on that. And if you haven't heard any of those, then good. But if you have, and you probably have at least heard of one of them, they're a lot more popular than you think, specifically with our age group. And maybe we're young now, but we're not going to be young in... 10, 20 years, we're going to be the regular voting class. And that is what makes this incredibly dangerous. Yeah. The centrist voters that are propping up either the red Tories or the, the liberal party are getting older. And you'll see that also in the United States, the, the voters that put Joe Biden over the line, they're also very, very old. COVID has created a huge realignment in the political spectrum where because centrist moderate parties were willing to support lockdowns, older people drifted from the conservative parties towards these more centrist parties in order to support the lockdowns. But that also means that with time, older voters are, are going to die and be replaced off. 
and where we used to be living in a world where the dying off of, of boomers was a good thing for left-wing parties. We just assumed that basically as the as millennials got older, that left-wing parties would do better and better and better. The reality is becoming more muddled. And millennials are assigned, particularly millennial men, are assigning themselves to the conservative movement much more than we ever would have suspected. Because particularly social media like like Reddit, like YouTube, it sort of sponsors a particular hyper-masculine image. And when you see as well the change in society, when you see this idea of masculinity being challenged over and over again, whether it's by the mere existence of LGBTQ people or by, oh, oh no, they cast a woman in my Star Wars. Ah, that's the worst Ugh. thing that's ever happened to me. A person uh, of color. Oh no. Exactly. Oh, no. Whether when you see your your idea of what's a of what's a cool Han Solo masculinity being challenged, you might have never considered voting conservative in your life. But if you hear someone like Jordan Peterson telling you your insecurity at this is is genuine and it's and it should be respected and in fact it should be fostered. We should we should be insecure about more parts of of your fragile masculine ego. They start shifting to. Uh, parts of the of the political spectrum we never could have possibly anticipated. The recent and South Korean ele- uh, uh, election, Jacob yep, touched yep. on this in a previous podcast. The recent South Korean election was driven largely by uh, male millennials, and yep. they elected quite a right wing government, quite an anti women government, anti LGBT government. Uh, it was young men, and we need to start getting ahead of this. We can't be, we can't shrug or look away. And then be upset when in five years things start to really change. And uh, I mean, I, I, like, I really, you know, I think, I think I've said all there is to kind of say here. You know, I hope that, you know, had we said at the start, we're joining the conservative party and we're going to prop up the neoliberals to get rid of the neoliberals. It would have sounded really confusing. Exactly. But I hope <laughs> that now you understand a little bit better where we're coming from and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, we're not propping up the the neoliberals to save the neoliberals. It's because at least you can shift neoliberals a little bit and then eventually replace them with more progressive people. With these guys, with the Polyevs and the Lewises and some aspects of the Babers, uh, or sorry, I should say Babers and Berniers, you can't shift those people. You just can't. They're ideologues and they're dangerous ideologues. Well, they just haven't accepted that society has changed and they want to reverse the changes to our society. And they would say, so if, they would say we're ideologues, but all we're doing is just like, it really is, at the end of the day, it's quite libertarian. It's like letting people do what they want to do within yeah. the confines of the law, living life how they want to live it, and being supported in it. If that mind, isn't mind a your world... own business. That's, that's the only... That's, that's life in the city. And yeah. uh, that's what you need. That, that That's the only principle you need to accept. And, and if that isn't a world you want to live in, then you can you can move to Hungary or, or Russia. You know, yeah. that's what I say to people who like Tucker Carlson. I'm like, you know how much he loves Hungary and, and Viktor Orban, who's a dictator and he runs a far right regime. And all Tucker Carlson goes on about is how much he wants the U.S. to be like Hungary. He's broadcasted from there. Uh, we've seen an alignment. That's the other disturbing thing is we've seen an alignment of right wing populists with Russia as opposed to countries like Ukraine, as opposed to countries that are more free, we're seeing this alignment with authoritarian right-wing countries. Why do you think that left-wingers say that's the model that they want to impose? Sure, a lot of people are compared to Trump, and maybe they're not always like Trump, but like, but the, the reality is, is the heart of this movement, it's an anti-globalization, anti-immigration, 
anti-multiculturalism agenda. It is. And we have a duty. I feel I have a duty as a Canadian who wants to protect our, our pluralism, our, our, our cultural mosaic. I have a duty to do this thing that I otherwise would never dream of doing, becoming a, a conservative party member, <laughs> to stop us from falling into the trap that the U.S. did. I know Canada's great. Like, I know all of you are saying we're not the states. Canada's great. It is. But we can't get complacent and keep saying that just because we're better than the states that it can't happen to us. we got to keep uh, it great. Exactly. And the Freedom Convoy is, is, is a sign of the cracks in the armor that is Canada. And it can happen to us. Maybe it's a small minority of voters that showed up to the convoy. But certain ideas from this movement, it's not just about who showed up to the convoy. Certain ideas in this movement are widely supported by Canadians. There were, I believe, 30-40% of Canadians that were at, least, at, at first yeah, sympathetic yeah. to the convoy. These are ideas that could get into government, and I don't want a country like that. No, I don't want to live in that country either, and that's why I'm so willing to, to fight for the country that we have now and improve it, rather than just tearing apart and living in this chaos that is called freedom in, in Pierre Polyev's terms. Well said. And uh, with that, uh, I think this is a good place to end it for the week. Uh, I hope that, um, you know, I, I certainly don't expect our, our listeners to all go running to the Conservative Party and buying memberships, but if, if you want to join us on this crusade, if you, you too feel you have a duty to, uh, you know, do what you can to try to stop this, this guy, and then by all means join us, you know, like the Conservative Party already has the biggest war chest out of all the parties. Uh, it makes no difference to give them your 15 another fifteen bucks. Like, uh, fuck, whatever. You know, worst thing I've done. Worst things in my life. Another so, anti-Trudeau ad that <laughs> no one gives a shit about. <laughs> yeah, another bad meme. Uh, yeah, exactly. And with that, uh, if you have anything to say about this, uh, we always love to hear from you. You can uh, reach out to us at speechfromthethrone at gmail.com. That's speechfromthethrone at gmail.com. And with that, take good care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.